Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the blatant pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, we almost never do this anymore, so I will just give a quick reminder to everyone who is listening that if you'd like to support this podcast, uh, go check out patreon.com slash techdirt. Uh, we've now done over 200 episodes of the podcast, and we have never had a single ad on it. Uh, so if you like the podcast and want us to be happy to keep doing it, uh, Patreon is a good way to show your support. Now, uh, one of the topics that we cover on Tector quite a bit is the nature of the surveillance state uh, and the ever encroaching powers of the intelligence agencies. Uh, this goes back many, many years, even pre-Edward Snowden, uh, as the government's abuse of the internet and other technologies to do surveillance in what we believe to be violation of the Fourth Amendment has long been a major concern. But uh, part of the problem is that the intelligence community has a long history of defending its position in the most misleading ways possible. Um, while lots of people like to insist that the intelligence community just lies about everything with abandon, I think that that is rarely true. Uh, more frequently, they say things that are technically true, but in reality, incredibly misleading. Uh, sometimes this involves inventing new definitions for words. Uh, sometimes it involves selectively misrepresenting details, knowing that most people will assume that they meant one thing when they really meant something else. Uh, our guest today, however, is not most people. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy Wheeler uh, has been writing about this stuff uh, for just as long, if not longer than we have, and is famous for her ability to not just more accurately parse the purposefully misleading statements of the intelligence community, but to also have what appears to be a photographic memory of other documents and statements, tying them all together in ways that highlight what is really going on and where the misrepresentations may be. Uh, if she wasn't so damn good at revealing what the spy agencies were trying to hide. She probably would have made an incredibly good spy herself. <laughs> uh, Marcy, welcome to the podcast. Really awesome to be on. Thanks. <laughs> so let's start by talking about Section 215, which is one of the programs that was revealed by Ed Snowden in the documents uh, that he uh, released. Uh, and that involved the intelligence community slurping up basically all phone metadata records. Um, a modified of that program is up for renewal, uh, and recent reports suggest that the intel community has stopped using it despite years of insisting that the program was vital to national security. So let's talk a little bit more about this program uh, and, and see if we can start from the beginning. W what was it originally designed to do? Well, I should clarify that uh, Section 215 is the authority. It does uh, yes, maybe three different kinds of things, and the phone dragnet is just one of those Things So um, it started uh, back in the 90s as a way to give the intelligence side of FBI the same kind of subpoena power that you would get with a de-order. So in other words, you know, you can go and get phone records or you can go and get um, you can subpoena a business that uh, there were concerns that 
um, the FBI couldn't do that in secret, which is nuts because D orders never become public. Right. Um, and therefore, this authority well, was can, created. Can, can we just sorry? Can you just explain what D orders are for people who don't know? Well, uh, D order. There are D orders are without a are are done without a grand jury, and then subpoenas are done with a grand jury. But those right. are ways to get massive amounts of data and information, so documents, um, in the criminal context. And the argument back in the 90s was we need a similar function on the intelligence side so that we can go, um, you know, figure out what suspected Russian spies are doing, even though we don't ever intend to prosecute them. And we want to keep it super duper secret because these are Russian spies. So that was the logic back in the 90s um, with the... Uh, and and those had to be individual back in the 90s. And then in 2001, with the Patriot Act, they said it doesn't have to be individual. It can be related to an investigation. In 2005, they had to reauthorize it. And Congress tried to limit that authority by saying it has to be relevant to an investigation. And they they tried to limit that authority. This is crazy nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, because in kind of in the wake of the original Stellar Wind uh, revelations by the New York Times in December of 2015. So, I mean, t- sorry, in December of 2005. That was like literally they were about to reauthorize the Patriot Act. Then all of a sudden this huge program was disclosed and there was a delay in reauthorizing the Patriot Act, and Congress said, hmm, let's put some limits on this. Let's let's require that it be relevant to an investigation. And this is one of those examples where FBI said, I'm going to redefine relevant to in secret <laughs> and make it mean all. Actually, they were, they'd already done that in 2004, but, but regardless, because right. what had happened was the government was moving parts of Stellar Wind, which was this illegal surveillance program uh, started by George Bush in the, in the wake of 9-11, or arguably before. And um, <clears throat> after people started, people within DOJ started complaining about it, first they moved the internet dragnet side in 2004 to the Patriot Act, and then in 2006 they moved the telephone side of the dragnet to Patriot to Patriot Act, and 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 that authority was called 215. So that's how they started trying to suck up all of the phone records. So you know, I call you, you call me, we're on for 10 minutes. That's the kind of information they're getting, as well as, by the way, um, pretty early on in the in the Patriot Act process, they were also getting. Um, uh, cell phone identifiers, so SIM cards and, and mm-hmm. uh, device identifiers, which is really interesting because the government said that they kept having problems collecting on cell phones, which is confusing because why would you be getting SIM cards if you're not collecting on cell phones? Right. Uh, <laughs> whatever. So then, um, so they're trying to make this a dragnet. And, and actually, one of, the, one of the issues is that the FISA court... Um, this is one of the actually good things about the FISA court. The FISA court actually takes notice of what's going on, not just in criminal courts, but even in magistrate courts around the country. And mm-hmm. because of what's called the Magistrates' Rebellion, um, back in this time frame, in 2006, a couple of magistrates were like, you know, I don't think you should get location data with a D order. That's the thing I re- referenced earlier, right? Right. I, I don't think you should be able to get cell phone location data. Um, and so... The FISA court said, huh, that's interesting. Why don't you brief it? And there were several rounds of briefing that question. And I think in 2009, although I can't guarantee the date, 
Um, the FISA court's like, mm, we also don't think you should be getting. I mean, by by 2014, it's it's clear that um, because there were districts in the country that required a warrant for cell phone location, the mm-hmm. FISA court had done so as well. They were requiring a full FISA warrant. In any case, that is one of the backgrounds. It's not just Edward Snowden that right. led to the re to, to the kind of relaunch of this program. It's also that. Because the government wasn't able to get, wasn't permitted by the FISA court to get location data under this bulk program, and because um, the authority at the time did not include the requirement of assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, uh, Verizon basically said, okay, you can't have my cell phone data. And they succeeded in doing that by saying, we're not going to strip off the location data. You know, you can only get records we already have and all of the phone re- all of the cell phone records we have have location data and therefore you can't have it. AT&T was willing to strip it off because in general if you have to choose who's more fond of surveillance between Verizon <laughs> and AT&T your money is always best spent on AT&T. Yes. Um so uh so those two things Edward Snowden that's his first disclosure in june of 2013 he Mm -hmm. says whoa we've got this dragnet of everyone's phone records and that um led to a lot of outrage but it also gave the people inside government who didn't think this program was really working out uh, leverage to to offer up a different way of doing it and oh get many chumps in the surveillance community to believe they were getting some big win out of it at well as well so um so you know big fight over that 2014 2015 finally what's called usa freedom act because these authorities are always orwellian named (laughs) right Um, you know here here's more surveillance let's call it freedom um they um they basically what they did is um you get authority for a selector um, but this, I mean, the the target might be Al Qaeda or ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and the government might go to the FISA court and say, "Here's 50 known ISIS recruiters." So that one, all of a sudden, starts off as 50. Then they go to NSA and they say, "NSA, give us all of the identifiers you know these 50 known ISIS recruiters use." So now, you know, if each of them has has three cell phones, now you've got 150 identifiers. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the phone companies, and phone company isn't really well defined here, but you go to the phone companies and you say, give us all the identifiers that are in contact with these now 150 uh, identifier uh, phone identifiers, right? And 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 if you think about it, they're gonna they're gonna give AT&T and Verizon and everyone else both the SIM card and the uh, device identifier and IP addresses that are known to be used and so on and so forth, because that's the way in which you register a phone. And the USA Freedom Act defined a call record, a call detail record. This is nuts, right? Okay. They Mm -hmm. defined it as a session identifier. Okay. Now you tell me what the problem with describing a phone call as a session identifier when you're talking about mobile phones. Um, I, I, I'm I'm actually not sure I know what what you're getting at here. Well, I mean, the point is that like it, it all it has so long as it includes either a SIM card or a device device identifier, uh-huh. then it still counts as a as a CDR, even right. if no phone call has taken place. Okay. 
And the, I mean, partly the logic, the way in which they used to, to, to excuse that was, well, we need texts. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. So, uh, so but, but were they trying to get the actual content of the text or the, the metadata around the text? Just the metadata. But, okay. but I mean, think about it. Every time your phone pings, right. that's another session identifier. Right. When you use your phone to log, if, when, when I signal text you, that's mm-hmm. still a session. Right. And Verizon may actually see, I think for my, my, my theory, my working theory, is that Verizon actually sees the um, key for that individual signal session. Um, and so they can match the other key, right? Because if, if, if I signal you, you and I have the same key for that signal right. text, right? And they can match it and they can say, oh, Mike and Marcy think they're pulling a fast one, but we've just identified their texts. Um, right. That, that's a guess. But anyway, so, you know, as it was, USA Freedom Act wasn't particularly narrowly defined because you can't describe something as a session identifier in this day and age because anything can be and, – and super cookies, right? Verizon right. super cookies, also a session identifier. Right. And so, so, so just just for background on that, which was Verizon had, you know, this thing which is referred to as super cookies, which basically – could identify all sorts of stuff that that people were doing on their Verizon phones and and um you know basically by by looking at all different kinds of activity and it was much broader than most people thought Verizon was was tracking people for right right um anyway so that's all the background to say that in um in the first full year of this stuff I'm going to get the number here wrong I think it was 150 million CDRs that they collected, and then in the second year, so this would be covering 2017, they collected 500 million CDRs, 500 right. million uh, session identifiers. And, and we know this because one of the, the elements of the USA Freedom Act was that they did have to report that information. Is that correct? Kind of. They're not reporting <laughs> the right information either. Okay. I mean, they're supposed to, like, one of the things they're supposed to uh, report is how many unique people uh-huh. are that. It, is right. that, Right. But uh, for a variety of reasons, they don't track that. And so they just threw up their hands and said, sorry. Um, <laughs> that, you know, like one of the things that the 215 debate will do this year is revisit some of the games that they played with transparency in, in 2015 and try and make it real. Because a lot of the categories along the way just aren't real. And they're, you know, they're kind of, they're meant to distract. They're like, Oh, look at this shiny object over here describing what CIA does, but let's hide what FBI does because FBI right. is where the business end is. Right. So and, and so it it is and and so there is some confusion about that too, right? So it is it's technically the FBI that is getting this information, but then they're passing it on to other agencies, right? Um it is this program. So right. I said there were three uses <laughs> for this, right? Sure. There are at least three. Um, and the FBI still uses it, and they use it, um, A, to do what national security letters can't do for intelligence investigations, which, which, um, which covers terrorists and spies and some hacking, but, um, but FBI increasingly uses criminal process for terrorists because terrorism is always a crime. I mean, once right. you have a material support statute, you actually – I mean, and this is something that I think – the privacy and the law enforcement community should start talking more about. Once you have a material support statute, 
You mm-hmm. really don't need to use these intelligence author- uh, intelligence authorities for terrorism anymore. And, right, because it's all and, criminal. And in fact, behavior. they don't. Um, the most right. recent IG report on 215 says this is pretty much mostly used for uh, spies, not for terrorists. And the reason being because terrorists, you've got criminal process and it moves quicker and it's easier. And the FBI will always choose to, to take the path of least resistance. So, um, so yeah. So if you have this suspected Russian spy, Carter Page, let's take Carter Page. Sure. It's highly likely that they used 215 with him. There, there was a time and it probably is still the case that if you have been approved for a content warrant, as we know Carter Page was, then you're kind of automatically approved for a 215 order. And that means that they can use 215 because, right, you're getting the content anyway. They can use 215 to go get business records, to go get your bank records, to go get your um, hotel stay records, to go get your storage records, to go get your... In addition, um, since 2009, some of the tech companies have said, we're not a phone company, and therefore you can't use a national security letter to get our toll records, meaning... When I email you, right, that's different right. than when I phone you. And the, you know, the Googles of the world, presumably, um, said you can't use national security letters for that application anymore. And that's increasingly done on 215 orders. So those are, the, those are two of the three main functions to um, the FBI's use of it. So uh, generally going to collect information on suspected spies, getting um, – internet metadata that they can't get otherwise. But by the way, think about some of the things they might be getting on internet metadata um, because it's not just e- like the government loves to confuse you and make you think they're only collecting email metadata. Right. Right. And you do so much online that generates metadata. Um, I, I'm going to take, um, uh, so the government today unsealed a bunch of the criminal process used against Michael Cohen. And mm-hmm. in there, they show the content orders that the government used multiple times, serially, over and over again. Hey, Google, give us everything you have on, on Michael Cohen. And I, and I really encourage everyone who listens to this, because you all care about this, to go read those. <laughs> because you will, I mean, you all know that Google is an information sock. Right. Right. Um, Apparently, Michael Cohen didn't use Facebook because we don't see any of those. But you (laughs) go read it and it will terrify you. I know this and I read it this morning and and I, you know, uh, because they get things. I mean, of course, they get your entire search history. And of course, they get all of the IP addresses you log in from and any of the identities that log in from that same IP address. So, you know, if, if the FBI is coming after me, which they probably have. Then they're also going to go after my spouse because he and I use the same IP address. Um, Then there's cookies. They're getting Mm -hmm. all of the Google cookies. Imagine all of the cookies that Google has on you and all of the things it tells about you. Um, Anyway, go read those. It'll terrify you. (laughs) Where was I? But but under what authority were they getting all that information? So that was criminal. that That was actually a search warrant. Right. So right. That, um, that that at least has at least some Fourth Amendment due process associated with it, right? Yeah. We, we Although they, they get some of these things. They get the IP address, again, because that's metadata. Right. They get the IP address with just a D order. Right. 
So they would have, and they did, we didn't see those with, we saw some of those with Cohen, but we didn't see all of them. You know, they would have, uh, in fact, it's sort of interesting because what happened was Mueller was investigating Cohen and said, hey, SDNY, you take this other stuff. And they bumped it off. And SDNY first got a D order for, for the Google account. Mm-hmm. And then without having looked at the content that was already in Robert Mueller's possession, said, oh, okay, here are the phone calls that I'm interested in. Now I can use this to go get probable cause for these other crimes that we're going to investigate Michael Cohen in. So that's how, that's how Mueller's been handing off all of these, you know, kind of burgeoning investigations across the government is he finds it. He says, hey, SDNY, you got some stuff here. And SDNY goes through this process to get their own access to the data. And then after, I'm sure, SDNY raided Cohen, then Mueller did the same to get all of that data back to him. So it's, you know, it's, all, <laughs> it's all being passed around the government like that. Right, um, right. Anyway, yeah, read those Google things because, um, boy, duck, duck, go, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there is, there is a lot of information collected and, and obviously um, – even in cases when it's just the just the metadata, he says in quotes, uh, it can tell an awful lot about you know what you're doing, what you're searching for, and and um, you know all, all different kinds of activity that that when put together can paint quite a picture. Um, so so let, let's move on to there was just the recent New York Times report about the intelligence community supposedly no longer using the two fifteen. Which I got first, by the way. Oh. Um, okay, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all right. I, I mean, I will say that I had not gotten. I mean, I had been doing some work on 215 before this, and um, right. and some people were told that this was going on. I was not one of those people because they, you know, never tell me these things. So right. Now I can accuse them of hiding information from me, even well, like Rebecca Richards. I was I was in contact with her, and she was pretending to like me, um, <laughs> which is just crazy. Rebe- Rebecca Richards is NSA's privacy person, and she didn't like me. <laughs> um, but anyway, she was pretending, even while she wasn't telling me, but she was telling other people. That they um, so what had happened was last year, right after the government had to admit that they had gotten five hundred million million of these CDR records under right. the under the phone drag the the new phone dragnet, um, then they issued NSA issued a release and said um, we've destroyed it all, and NSA never does that unless they've basically broken the law. Right. And there are a couple of instances where they very quickly destroy everything. Um, they 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 did that in 2011 when they were getting uh, content as metadata that they should not have been getting on on the internet Patriot mm-hmm. Act program. Um, but this, so they destroyed everything, and they basically. Um, I had thought maybe they were getting location information, um, but Susan Landau, who you should always read. Uh, had a piece in Lawfare the other day that says they were probably getting unrelated contacts because of a problem with the SS7 uh, mm. uh, program. And she's a technical genius, so once she writes up her paper on that, then we'll all be smarter. Right, um, and S- but- SS7, is, that's like uh, SMS-related thing? No, SS7 is, is how uh, cell phones talk to each other. Right. And it's really, it's really vulnerable. There have been numerous... Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is, uh, for years, basically, the telecommunications industry were like, ah, who cares if, if anybody can break into this system? 
we trust everyone on it. And back when there were only three or four telecoms in each country, that sort of worked, even though everyone knew that not having a secure SS7 system allowed, you know, allowed you to spy on everyone else and everyone else to spy on you unless the providers, you know, kind of hardened their own SS7 system right. within their own country. And But now because uh, tele what counts as, it's, as a phone company, remember I said before that no one really is defining phone company anymore. Right. Um, and what counts as a phone company has proliferated. So that means all these other people have access to the SS7 system, which makes it really easy to spy on people. And it's very insecure. And, uh, and whatever Susan... Uh, will soon enlighten us with also has some technical problems and therefore uh, NSA was getting completely unrelated people. Hmm. And oh, by the way, this entire program is sort of an eligibility thing. So, you know, it's it's the NSA's way of finding everyone to degree from a, from a, 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 you know, suspected terrorist. And and once you get identified as part of that, then you get sucked into NSA and they can do other kinds of analysis on you. So, um, in and of itself, that's a question, you know, we should ask whether in this day and age where white supremacist terrorist is, frankly, a bigger threat at this point than ISIS, whether we should have this um, asymmetric system in which the FBI actually does a pretty good job of finding white supremacist terrorists, not all of them, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, without all of these enhanced tools that they happen to get with Islamic terrorists because there's an international component. And they don't actually pursue the fact that there is an international component increasingly with white supremacist terrorism, Mm -hmm. as there was in the New Zealand attack. So um, um, anyway, that's a, that's a distraction, but um, (laughs) no, it's all, it's all interesting. So, so anyway, so back to the, this, um, so what's happening with the, the 215 program, um, and and the report that it's no longer being used in this way. Yeah. So um, so they destroyed it last June. Um, we're beginning, we and other people, beginning to uh, look forward to the 215 report. And then um, Kevin McCarthy's national security staffer goes on lawfare and blabs that they're not using it. And haven't right. basically, he said six months, but it sounds like they never resumed using it after the... Um, after the destruction of the records last year, again, looking back at what happened in, in past problems on similar problems, my guess is that NSA hasn't found a way to do it such that it is useful and has found a way to do what they want to do using other means or found a way to approximate what they want to do using other means. And one thing to know is, I mean, so one of the one of the issues, and this is a point that Susan and Charlie Savage, when he wrote the New York Times article, um, you know, who who call, who makes phone calls anymore? Right. <laughs> and and what smart terrorists use Verizon's SMS system to send <laughs> right. texts? Right. Right. So you're really talking, and I I've said this multiple times. What is it? What is a phone anymore? Right. Yeah. My phone is a computer that um, can work either on telephony lines or on, you know, via Wi-Fi on internet lines, and those lines intersect anyway. Yep. Um, and, you know, what is the distinction between these things anymore? But Charlie suggested and Susan suggested that the point is that terrorists aren't using phone calls to organize anymore, so what's the point? And my guess is that they can substantially do what they were doing with 
1233, which right. is the authority, which is kind of inherent presidential authority, um, which because of the way the Internet works, they can get a whole bunch of information overseas, even though they're collecting on domestic activities. Right. So, so, so let's, let, let's dive in a little bit on, on 12333, which is this executive order. It's a, a Reagan-signed executive order. And at, at some point, uh, and, and I'm sure you probably knew this before everyone else as well, but, you know, uh, a few years ago, a, a former State Department official basically said everyone talking about these other programs are missing the big picture, which is that the intelligence community is using Executive Order uh, 12333 to basically suck up everything overseas. And and so the, the as my understanding of the program, and feel free to correct me, is that it, it more or less says the intelligence community is free uh, outside of the U.S. to suck up whatever information it can get its hands on. Uh, and that includes an awful lot of stuff, even stuff that is nominally communication within the U.S. may travel outside its borders briefly, um, and that allows the intelligence community to, to suck up all of that information. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to travel outside of the borders. Um, and at, you remember one of the other really interesting Ed Snowden disclosures was that um, the NSA was getting Google and Yahoo data from their servers overseas. Right. So because Google and Yahoo mirror their data around the globe so that wherever you are, it's not going to take very long to get your email or what have you, um, it means that entirely domestic data is available in servers overseas. Right, right. And so it doesn't even have to transit overseas and a great deal, because of the SS7 thing I talked about, a great deal of the phone records that the government might want anyway is available from overseas. Mm -hmm. And so um, actually in 2000, starting in 2009, as the government was, as, as the FISC started catching the government misusing some of these Patriot Act authorities, uh, the government did something that was part of Stellar Wind and then had been shut down and then started being resumed. This is nutty, but I think Alberto Gonzalez uh, delayed it from mm -hmm. being resumed. Um, and so they got rid of Alberto Gonzalez and then they, they put this into place. So you, so it used to be you couldn't chain through Americans. You couldn't um, do 12333 analysis on Americans. Mm -hmm. So if you get my metadata back in the old days, um, once they identify that I'm an American, you got to stop. And you also can't figure out, like, if I call my Irish mother-in-law and then call my Irish brother-in-law who lives in England, um, it's interesting that my mother-in-law and my brother-in-law both talk to me, but because I'm in the middle there, in the old way, you weren't able to see that I had called both of them. But right. starting in 2009, uh, NSA started being able to do that. And um, and they said, well, it's just because we want to chain through or because, and this is a legit use, uh, because we need to see how foreign hackers are hacking through U.S. identifiers, right? Mm. So if you're going to hack the Pentagon, I mean, the DNC hack, right? A lot of that infrastructure was domestic. Sure. And... Because it was domestic, it required certain kinds of process that you wouldn't require if they had just hacked right from Russia. Um, and that would not get the same attention that if you had just hacked right from Russia. And so um, so 
it allowed people to get access to domestic metadata under 12333. And that basically made it a lot easier to do a lot of this stuff with 12333. And as crazy as it sounds, the government actually thinks the FISC is a pain in the ass. Right. Uh, you know, like to you and me, I mean, actually, I don't. I think that the FISC is, is I, I will defend the, the FISA court on a number of issues. Um, but we talk a lot about it, it being this big secret court. The alternative in many cases, there are two alternatives that we're talking about. One alternative and where a lot of the Internet stuff and where probably this phone stuff has gone to is 702. So it's a different part of FISA. It right. gets content. And because you can get content, you can, you know, back end the metadata off the content. They started doing that in 2011. And by 2012, they had moved a big chunk of the old PRTT, the old internet dragnet. They had moved that to 702 with the advantage that um, these Patriot Act authorities were uh, at least nominally limited to terrorism cases because that's what, you know, Michael Hayden could go to Congress and scream, oh, my gosh, terrorism, when, in fact, they really wanted to use it with spies and hackers. Now, you know, if you do it on 702, they can do it with spies and at least nation-state hackers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm sure a lot of that moved to 702. There's no um, – there is never any court review of what NSA is doing with 702. Right. No, no defendant who has been identified using 702 has ever really gotten any review of it. Now they've laundered 702 uh, identifying uh, defendants through 702 through, you know, they, they launder it back and forth through criminal process. So no one right. has ever gotten any visibility, much less been able to challenge the designation of some analyst sitting at Fort Meade saying, you know, um, I think Marcy's Irish mother-in-law is a spy. Which is right. crazy. She's very sweet. Um, she's not a spy at all. Um, she's good at badminton. But, um, I don't know. But that, that could be a sign. <laughs> I, you know, I should interrupt and say, um, you know, that I've told you this privately, but I'm going to say it publicly now. The only way I can get my spouse to read anything, Mike, do you know this? Is when you quote me on tech. <laughs> like, so he never reads anything I write, but he, he'll come home at the end of the day. He's like, oh, I read, I read you on tech today. <laughs> so he's probably going to hear me talking about his mom. And um, <laughs> that's great. My spouse. Um, anyway, so, so um, yeah. So, you know, some analyst at Fort Meade could say Marcy's mother-in-law, who is Irish and lives in Ireland, she's, she must be a spy. Because, right. you know, because she plays badminton well. And, um, and, and no one would ever get to review that. I mean, the, the analyst's boss would get to review it. Right. Uh, the, you know, if the analyst was doing to target my not very interesting conversations with my mother-in-law, then, you know, that would be that they might, sometimes they catch that that's reverse targeting, but even the way in, re in which reverse targeting is defined is, is actually too permissive. Um, so that's one way that it goes to the 702 black hole. And that's available for like, you know, for, for Google. We just talked about how much Google has on you and, and right. that stuff. Like, it, so after you guys read that Google order, think about the foreigners you talk to and know that uh, the NSA can get all of that information on the foreigners you talk to without a warrant. Right. And and so some of this is, is 
the the whole concept of parallel construction, right? So if they do find this information using the 702 program, effectively to avoid ever having to have that program challenged in court, they they figure out some other way that they might have gotten that same information and sort of effectively say that that's how they got the information, right? Is that a, a fair description? Yeah, there's a really cool case. Not It's not cool. It's a bad case, but it's, it's a case <laughs> that people should look at. It's called Keith Gartenlaub who um, he was a Boeing engineer and some cowboy FBI agent said, hey, I read on Wired that the Chinese are going after this, this Boeing program and I live, I live near a Boeing facility, so I'm going to go find my own Chinese spy in this Boeing facility, not having any evidence there was a Chinese spy mm. at the Boeing facility, and then latched onto this guy, Keith, uh, who was an IT guy, had access to the program, and was married to a Chinese-American, naturalized mm. Chinese-American, who had interesting relatives in China. And that was basically the substance of uh, why they started looking at him. And my guess is it started on 702 and then moved to criminal process to get his Google and Yahoo emails and then moved back to FISA, to individualized FISA, so that they could go and image his hard drives. And then it moved back to criminal process on something entirely different. Um, and he uh, is trying to get cert at Supreme Court to, to prevent that kind of thing from happening. But um, worth keeping an eye on. Um, yeah. But, you know, because in that case, it was like, it was like, hey, we're in search of a crime. And, hey, this guy who's in an interesting location, meaning Boeing, mm -hmm. uh, has, is married to a Chinese citizen who is a loyal American, uh, who happens to have really interesting relatives in China, and therefore he must be suspect. Right. Which does not seem like the kind of thing that you would normally consider to be probable cause under the Fourth Amendment. Right. Yeah. Um, or probable cause of an agent of a foreign power. And they right. kept going back and forth between the two. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the sort of larger point here, and we're talking about all the different specific programs and authorities and things like that, but I think the larger point is the fact that there are all of these different programs and authorities and that they're used in combination in ways that basically allow them to get almost everything that they want on you. Um, and they sort of will tap dance around it until they figure out ways to get this information and the kind of information that we would think if you just look at the authorities and the Constitution they shouldn't be able to get. Right. And the way in which it works because of the technology and because the geography of all this right now is um, if something gets shut down or if it becomes inconvenient to deal with the FISA court, oh, because the other place it's going to go, I said it was going to go to 702. The other right. place it's going to go is 1233, and it's the same thing. There's even less review there right. than and, there and is if you're going to Google. And so both of those are less optimal than going through going through Fisk on the phone dragnet. Right. Um, and so that's probably what happened. So, you know, we could say, great, they shut down a program, but, uh, uh, you know, it also means that um, there's probably less review of, of it going on now. <laughs> and and 12333 is also supposedly not, that's not part of Congress's oversight, right? Is that correct? Or is that that's generally correct. They've they've um, kind of picked at the edges of overseeing it. Mm -hmm. And I think um, not with this Supreme Court as currently constituted, although I got to say Gorsuch is much better on this than people give him credit for. Mm -hmm. But um, and, and I think 
Sotomayor has really laid some groundwork for for doing surveillance work. But um, it, it um, and and under Bill Barr, under the new Attorney General, I mean, he's a huge mm-hmm. fan of, of of executive authority. So it, yeah. it's a weird time. And, to be and alive. surveillance. <laughs> um, Right. It's a weird time to be alive. But I think, um, (laughs) you know, so Congress is very reluctant to do this because they're afraid they're going to get they're going to get beat up on doing it. But they have they've kind of picked at the edges of doing it. The problem is in 2017, um, one of the last things Barack Obama did before uh, authoritarian Donald Trump and crazy man took over was <laughs> to give the FBI and CIA and any other agencies who can come up with a good reason for it to give them access to 12333 to limit amounts of 12333 data but they could say hey you know like I'm sure in the Russian investigation FBI called up NSA and said hey we're investigating Oleg Deripaska can you give us all your data on Oleg Deripaska and you know it got sent over to the FBI right. and you know there are good reasons for that but there's not enough review of that data um, and how it's used, in my opinion. Uh, and and as we have this discussion about t- 215 this year, that should be part of the conversation. And frankly, part of the conversation should be what I said before, which is that once you have material support, you should not need national security authorities to go after terrorism. Right. We should really sharply constrain what we're using these national security authorities for. Um, and think about, I actually had, I won't say who it was, but I had a very senior former intelligence person tell me last year that he thought we should start rebuilding the wall. Mm. You know, he thought that uh, given what you can do with people with these national, because the other thing about FISA is they're going to use authorities under FISA that they're not going to use in a criminal warrant. Because a criminal warrant, the defendant is ultimately going to get to see what kind of, say, hacking you did of their phone on a national security warrant they're not going to get to see that and so they're going to do far more uh aggressive things on a fisa order than they are on a criminal warrant and even this really hawkish guy said you know maybe we should start rebuilding the wall some and and those that should be where we where the discussion goes this year as we reauthorize 215 yeah and so and and you know it's funny how like national security just sort of becomes this talisman for let us do what we want <laughs> to some extent um but so so that that last point brings up the thing which is that 215 is up for reauthorization uh this this year and in so december, yeah. in december so what is what's the deal there so the deal because we know that parts of it got shut down is first trying to force the government into telling us what happened Telling us how they got to 500 million records, what went wrong, why did you shut it down, and do you really need this authority anyway? Um, The government always says, we don't want to say we don't need the authority. We want to have a means of turning back on once we can find a way to do it. But honestly, um, through this entire phone dragnet period, the entire one, it has never proved to be critically important. Right. And as I pointed out, Uh, We are in a point where it's crystal clear that white supremacist terror is just as dangerous to this country as as ISIS is, if not more. And the FBI, they don't have a perfect record, but they have a pretty good record at cracking down on that kind of terrorism without the same authorities that they have with ISIS. Right. And if they can do it with white supremacist terrorists without invoking what they should invoke, which is it is an international network at this point, but they're not doing that. 
In fact, they're doing far less of this network analysis that they are than they are even for other kinds of domestic terrorists. But if they're if they're okay, if they're successful without doing that, then maybe the fact is we don't need to network all of the Muslims in the United States in the name of terrorism. Right. Um, yeah. And do you have any sense of how Congress actually feels about the reauthorization of the program? No, um, I know people have already started having the conversations. It's a brave new world because, you know, there's so many new progressive members. um, But there's, you know, some of the new Democrats are also CIA spies. Uh, (laughs) um, True, right? True. I mean, there there are like people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib. And then there are the the several former CIA officers all on the Democratic side. So so we don't know what it's going to look like in the House, for one. Um, and frankly, you know, the Freedom Caucus has always been real allies on this issue, but they've gone kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, my congressman is Justin Amash, and I think he would even maybe not say that, but he would acknowledge that the Freedom Caucus yes. is not w- what they used to be. Yes, I think he's he, acknowledged that publicly. Yeah, he, um, he is not. Uh, I mean, he, he is, you know has a very principled stance on this stuff and has certainly called out uh, other members, I believe, of the Freedom Caucus for for uh, betraying their principled stance in favor of just supporting the president. Right. Uh, it's certainly on other issues like, you know, authorizing the wall. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so we don't know what's up with the Freedom Caucus. We don't know what's up with the new Democrats. And um, and it's a weird time in the Senate too so because again it's you know it's a weird time donald trump does crazy (laughs) things to everybody yeah 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 anyways so that that will definitely be something interesting to 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 follow um to finish out this conversation i wanted to talk about something related i guess but a little bit different which is um uh, going back to edward snowden and the documents that that he uh, passed on originally to uh, Laura Poitras and, and Glenn Greenwald, um, which is sort of referred to as the Snowden Archive, um, that uh, The Intercept, which is the publication started by those two, um, hosted and, and allowed people access to, um, and a few others have access to it as well. It was just recently reported that The Intercept is laid off some of the people who were researching it and were shutting down um, their copy of the Snowden Archive. Um, and you have some thoughts on, on what's happening here? Yeah, I mean, because uh, I was formerly part of The Intercept as a part-time person in 2014 before the archive existed. And then I tried to do some work in the archive in 2017, uh, actually to do some work in advance of the 702 reauthorization. Mm-hmm. Ended up doing a story that was influenced by the archive, but did not use anything from the archive on what I call the Tor exception, which is, an, you know, another, it's another podcast. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but as a result, I was not, you know, I was somewhat recently in the ar- in the archives as currently constituted. And I will say that people really need to appreciate that The Intercept, um, after their early days, did a lot of work Mm -hmm. to make those documents secure. And uh, and it is a tremendous legal and security risk to continue to operate them. And The Intercept isn't making all the money that they'd like to make. And so at least the public description is that... um, it became a cost decision um, because it costs a lot to keep that archive safe right. and accessible without becoming too accessible, which is what 
which is what Snowden wanted, right? I mean, Snowden, right. Snowden, want, Snowden wanted it to be archived, it, it to be reported on rather than free, freely released. And, and that's what I think The Intercept, and people don't give The Intercept a lot of credit for the extent to which they did this. That's what The Intercept did, a really good faith effort to, to keep that, those documents safe and accessible, but not too accessible. Um, and that cost a lot of money. Yeah. And so, as they've described it, they're going to stop doing that. And Glenn has said he's looking for a new place to host it. And that new place is going to have to, you know, be willing to take on, you know, if you, like, if you, if you move it to a university, right, um, right. it can't be like a library where anyone right. can go in and check out the books because everyone, you know, it it won't just be journalists who have a good faith interest in in privacy who goes in to look at the library. It'll be other people who just want to see what the NSA was doing circa twenty thirteen. Right. Yeah, and and you know, and and Glenn has made it clear that he thinks that a you know the 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 type of partner that would make sense at this point is probably something like a university that doesn't definitively mean this university. And I believe he stated something to the effect of, you know, at this point the archive is more useful as a sort of historical archive, you know, for research rather than for you know breaking news. Uh, you know, obviously it's been sort of. I mean, they're they're you know. Unfortunately, like on top of all of the good work they did protecting the archive, uh, it was never a functional place editorial thing. <laughs> okay. It was never. And so th that was an unfortunate balance because, you know, I would have loved starting in 2014 to use the archive as a counterpart to all my open source work on how are they using surveillance. And right. like I said, in 2017, there were a number of stories. I mean, just as one example, um, uh, when they um, shut down a certain function under 702 called a ballot collection yep. in 2017. And, um, and just just so people know, because the about collection is actually a really important thing that I think a lot of people didn't fully understand. Um, and, and you can, again, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that it allowed not just when they were collecting information, it wasn't just like uh, if I if they were if you were a target and they weren't just collecting you know messages to and from you they might collect messages about you so if i were to write to a colleague that you know oh i'm gonna have marcy on the podcast that would be collectible under the program because it was about you even if it wasn't it didn't actually involve you yeah although they still were just um targeting on signifiers on selectors so sure. for example you know it might be that you forward an email from me and they find my email which is sure. technically content of your email. Right. Or it might be that you you send somebody an email and say, call Marcy at 734, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and so that's the kind of things they were collecting. And, and, and they claimed that that was picking up a lot of Americans who were not otherwise targeted. And they said, and they could never get it straight such that once they collected stuff, they'd go back in and look at it. And right. here's the thing, is that um, I believe that the solution of shutting down a ballot collection and then permitting backdoor searches on 702 data, this is all complex, but basically once you get the data, <laughs> the NSA and especially the FBI will go back and look at it. Right. And if you've collected on people who aren't targeted, who aren't in communication with somebody who's targeted, then you're collecting on a lot of innocent people and then, you know, this data 
and then should not be available to you. You're right, basically getting right. free content. And um, but I made an argument that I mean the government always liked to say, oh yeah, we're we are targeting emails. We are only collecting emails. Right. And that's not. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, and and so one of the things that I was trying to uh, demonstrate in 2007 is the way in which they were targeting IP addresses. Right. Uh, again, read that Google thing from Michael Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Terrify <laughs> you. And the idea is, but I, you know, I think people haven't adequately thought through um, what the implications of them being able to target IP addresses are in this day and age. Right. Okay. And, so, uh, and um, read that Google stuff. Yes. Um, so, so just, just to. Was there anything else on the on the Snowden archive? I, I sort of took you off on a tangent about. No, the, no, no. I just want that. I want people to have that background because yeah. you know it, it is it is a frustrating state of affairs that the archive. You know, so I never did that work. I never right. did the work to say here's what it means that 702 can target an IP address and not just right. emails. Um, and I kind of gave up in 2017, and now I've lost my chance. Right. And so that is not just historical. It's important to help people explain the technical aspects of this spying. And, and that never was sufficiently done with the archive. And I think that's unfortunate. So I hope it does get a new home. But I do want people to understand that um, that really The Intercept did a laudable job, especially the people who got laid off, those yeah. researchers, did a really laudable job at keeping that data safe. Yeah, because uh, it, it is an incredibly difficult job, right? I mean, you have a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of people who would want access to that who should not have access to it. Right. And meanwhile, you've got the FBI treating the intercept like, you know, like they're, they're themselves suspect. Right. Just because they have a certain approach to journalism, which, oh, by the way, the New York Times and Washington Post have matched. Right. But the FBI still treats the intercept as uniquely suspect because they're doing journalism. And so, you know, that's, that's the world we're in. And, uh, and, and as Glenn tries to find a new home for that archive, understand that he's got a challenge ahead of him because it is not an easy task to do. Right. Okay. Uh, that is good, good background and good explanation for that, that, that I think uh, has been lacking from some of the discussion of it. So uh, I appreciate that and I appreciate uh, well, I appreciate all the work that you do <laughs> and uh, and taking the time certainly to join us for this podcast and talking about all of these issues, which are um, always uh, always relevant and and always changing and, and more stuff is always happening on, on this front. And, and I know that it is very, very difficult to keep all of this straight. Uh, and you do that better than I think basically anyone. Uh, and so so I certainly appreciate you coming on the, the podcast. Hey, did you hear that spouse? <laughs> there you go <laughs> yes yes uh your spouse should read your stuff uh <laughs> well they do when it, when when, you when i do well well to be fair my spouse does not read the stuff i write either so uh i don't i don't know if, if uh if she reads your stuff but it would not surprise me if the, the same were true in some some extent i'll start quoting her so that you can read her <laughs> there we go there we go all right uh excellent again uh thank you very much for, for having this conversation it was really interesting we'll definitely have you back on again in the future uh and uh thanks to everyone for listening and we'll be back next week thank Thanks for having me.